Hello and welcome to Spy Hearts Podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information, it's strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Cam, descending from the rafters, much like his co-host recently, we have a very special guest. Yes, we do. Representing the Spy-Fi Guys podcast. Welcome aboard, Zach. Hello. How are you? Hello, Spyhards. I'm doing well, thanks. And I have some questions for you mm, before oh. we begin. Oh, well, shoot. A guest has never uh, pitched that one up front. Yeah. What questions do you have? Well, I want to know when Cam is going to become an agent and mm. why he is such a provocateur. <laughs> <laughs> um... I guess I'll become an agent when we've actually chronicled every single spy movie on the list. Scott's cheating. He actually just gave himself the title honorarily. It's not official. I see. I, I disagree with this version of history. <laughs> <laughs> Provocateur is just cooler sounding though, right? Like who says that? That's a weird title to have. Fair enough. Yeah. We had to workshop it at first. Cam had some different names for himself, but we settled on Provocateur. Yeah, yeah. Trench coat guy just sounded a little too weird. <laughs> but um, well, thank you for asking questions first. That's the first time anyone's ever done that. So that's a nice... Uh... Do, do you have any more questions? I couldn't wait to have my questions answered. Did you have any follow-up questions? No, just curious. Okay, because we have plenty of questions for you. Um, now, obviously, your co-host joined us recently for the Macintosh Man, and we'll get back to that in a second. But we have heard from Christian about how the Spyfire guys came to be. But for those who don't know about the Spyfire guys who are just tuning in for this episode, just tell us and the listeners a little bit more about your show. Well, a little bit I would like to add to expand upon what Christian said. The original idea came from we were hanging out with a mutual friend of ours named Matthew, who said, you guys have a really good rapport. You're very funny together. Have you ever thought about starting a podcast? And around the same time, a mutual friend of ours, Jay and I were at a con, like a comic book convention here in the DC area. And we met three siblings who had started their own podcast. And they told us that it actually is not as hard as it sounds. So we did some research, started our own, which we can get to later. So then, like Christian said, when he was on, he and I thought about different topics we could do. Star Wars is well-saturated. Spy movies was considered, but I'm not as into the James Bonds and Mission Impossibles as he is. So what we ended up doing is compromising between a history podcast, which is more what I like, and spy movie podcasts that he likes. So as he said, we split our time between completely fictional movies and movies that are based on a true story, with the exception of the upcoming Swing 60 Spy Summer, which is all fiction because our list was slanted too much in that direction and we needed to even it out. Right. Yeah. And we're going to be doing an episode with you guys during that run as well. And that one is definitely not factual. You guys were very kind to Scott and I, who are both dimwits when it comes to actual history. <laughs> well, I see of it. I think of it as a good opportunity to learn things. <laughs> well, we haven't. Scott and I have yet to learn anything, but we're trying. We're, we dream. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm just glad that starting a podcast is so easy because as we are idiots, we wouldn't have done it any other way, Cam. Mm, very true. Very true. Did did we note the whole connection between Christian and Zach and us two meeting at a convention before? No, I don't think we did. I don't remember that. Sorry. 
No, no, it's fine. I mean, because we, me and Cam met at a Star Trek convention. Mm-hmm. And so you two met at a Comic-Con convention? Like a comic book uh, type thing? No, Christian and I met while watching Doctor Who Happy Hour at a local bar here in D.C. They opened up the back room to show an episode of Doctor Who every week, the rebooted series, of course. Mm-hmm. And What was the episode? Oh, I don't remember the specific episode. There were just a bunch <laughs> of us who came back week after week after week. We started hanging out and became friends that way. At least six people, three couples got married from it. So it was it was quite the happy memory. And then they switched to Star Trek Next Generation and people stopped going. Oh, that's cold, Obi-Wan. <laughs> that first season is really tough to get through. Oh, believe me. Scott and I met at a Star Trek con and... Uh... Let's just say when you go to these cons, they don't um, fawn over the first two seasons of TNG very often. And this will not be the first time or the last that we're bringing up TNG in this podcast, which is a little bit of a preview of things to come. Oh, okay. I'm looking looking forward to that. That's a a connection to make. Well, okay, so we've got the genesis of SpyFi, guys, I think, now between the two of you. Um, I know we asked Christian what his favorite film that he's covered so far is. What was your least favorite? My least favorite film? I was all ready for you to ask me my favorite one. <laughs> and I was ready to go on and on about it. <laughs> now, the least favorite film that we have covered and has actually been released was Hudson Hawk, starring oh, Bruce Willis. Right. Are you familiar with it? Yep. So the podcast itself is quite funny to listen to. I bust out some of my stand-up comedy bits we have some good exchanges, but the movie itself was definitely the least favorite one that we have released. And then we have one coming up in the swinging 60s, 60s spy summer, which was the Avengers from 1997, not the superhero <laughs> Avengers, but the one based on the old British TV show that I'm sure Scott is familiar with. Very. Uh, let's just say we, uh, we have that in our, in our sites as well um, quite soon. Yeah, the movie is something else. It, yeah, it truly is. I have a question, because I've seen Hudson Hawk. How did you guys connect sort of spy films to Hudson Hawk? Because my memory of that movie, other than it being like a complete mess, I don't recall a lot of spy stuff. Well, our definition of a spy movie is a little bit flexible. We've okay. covered secret agent movies. So movies like the Jason Bourne movies, I think it's probably safe to say, are effectively action movies or almost superhero movies. And they just say, oh, the main character is a secret agent to explain why they can do all this cool stuff. Now, Hudson Hawk, the main character is not a spy, but he does team up with a spy who works for the Vatican Organization. Yes, that's what it's called. And the antagonists are a CIA hit team. Oh, okay. I've totally blanked on all of that. Oh, well, maybe that's some potential uh, years down the road on Spy Hards as well. I will say I had heard of Hudson Hawk as a punchline to jokes involving Bruce Willis. So I was always curious to see it and I was not disappointed. I've actually never seen it, so I can't comment on the film. But it sounds like if we do cover it, we might have to get you both back just to relive (laughs) the nightmare. Oh, yeah. We'll have a lot to say about it. just remember one of the first issues of nintendo power magazine i ever bought um had coverage of the hudson hawk video game so that's where my relationship with that movie really started well cam i think we've definitely painted a picture of zach and the spy fi guys now let's paint a picture about the film we're doing this week what have you got for us yes we are taking on our first john le carré adaptation 
We are talking about 1984's The Little Drummer Girl, starring Diane Keaton and directed by George Roy Hill. And to intro this film, here is the Letterboxd.com synopsis. The Little Drummer Girl. She will become their most deadly weapon, as long as they can make her fall in love. <laughs> oh, that's such an 80s tagline. <laughs> uh, it, it, there's more, there's more, there's more. An American actress with a penchant for lying is forcibly recruited by Mossad, the Israeli intelligence agency, to trap a Palestinian bomber by pretending to be the girlfriend of his dead brother. That sentence confused me. Um, well, <laughs> the brother wasn't dead when they recruited her, but ah, fair enough. Ah, uh, uh, I like the I like the top line. The the bottom paragraph I wasn't so much a fan of. Oh, the tagline's amazing. Yeah. Um, okay, so in terms of connections to this film, I know me and Cam have a slight connection to it, but Zach, had you seen this film or read this book before covering it for the podcast at all? So I like to pretend that I'm a John le Carré fan. That isn't exactly true. I really like The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, the book. So I had heard of this book and movie, but I had not seen it. I knew the premise and I knew that the Mossad doesn't come off so well in the depiction. Maybe they were the bad guys, maybe not. I didn't remember exactly. So when you guys asked me to be on, I was happy to take advantage of the opportunity to read and see it. Yeah, it's worth pointing out that uh, Zach, for this podcast, has not only seen the film, but read the book. So now you are our guide, basically. Uh, right. Thank you for doing it for us. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Um. Okay, what about you, Cam? Apart from that little story we'll we'll share with about Nicholas Meyer, do you have any other connection to it? None whatsoever, really. The Nicholas Meyer connection is what uh, has... That's all I've got to hang my hat on in terms of connections to Little Drummer Girl. Uh, yeah, same here, particularly. Um, and for those who haven't listened to our interview with Nicholas Meyer, basically we were talking to him about his connection to Tomorrow Never Dies, but that then sort of spiraled off into spy literature and he said his favorite uh spy book was the little drummer girl and cam eagerly put his hand up and said oh, i've got a copy of that i've got a copy right. um and then i think what was nicholas meyer's reply cam he goes oh good good put it under your pillow <laughs> i understood that reference i can't believe you guys got nicholas meyer on that's really cool it was cool i still don't understand how that happened <laughs> Now, it felt like a bit of a fever dream at the time, I have to say. But uh, so, yeah, we, we've uh, we've been teasing Cam since then that uh, he's still never read the book. He just uses it to prop up his table or to hold his door open around the house. Well, the funny thing about that story was I had found a John le Carre compilation um, down in the laundry room of my uh, of my building here, my apartment. And so I grabbed it and it has, I think, like six John le Carre um stories all compiled into one massive book and so that's what i was thinking was yes i do have the little drummer girl sitting almost at arm's length away and it turned out when we had actually finished that podcast and i looked at that book i did not have the little drummer girl <laughs> so <laughs> i lied to nicholas meyer it's my great shame to carry <laughs> through the rest of my life <laughs> and it's on tape for us all to hear again and again and again that's right. That's right. But um, yeah, like for me, I've never read any other John le Carre. Um, I will at some point read Spy Who Came In From, from the Cold because it's in that compilation book I have. So uh, I will do that before we review that movie. 
But I've seen um, a number of movies. I've seen The Constant Gardener, Spy Who Came In From The Cold, Tinker Tailor. Um, but I would not say I'm that well-versed in John le Carre films. So that's something that this podcast will very much open the doors for me a little more because it was kind of like movies I saw sporadically through my life but didn't really delve into too deeply. Yeah, in terms of his work, I think I've only ever seen uh, The Night Manager, which is the BBC adaptation of one of his books. With, uh, Hugh, with Hugh Laurie and Tom Hiddleston, I think. Yeah, which was quite good. I enjoyed that. Nice, I've been to see that. And I'm surprised that you picked this one because it seems very different from the movies you guys have covered so far in the sense that it's very grounded in reality and is somewhat political. Yeah, um, we did Argo fairly recently, but um, yeah, we haven't done a lot of the real world spy films. And it, it's not by any particular choice. I think it was more just coincidence really because scott and i each kind of break up our picks into fours so we'll each pick four movies at a time and we just never grabbed onto a movie like this really for no real reason all right but yeah uh, what a place to start um so cam before we get into what we think about the little drummer girl now can you tell us uh, how it came to be in 1984 well let's just say the details on the making of Little Drummer Girl are scarce at best. Uh, it was kind of shocking not to be able to find interviews with people associated with this movie from like the 80s. No one apparently likes to talk about the making of this movie. It's very strange. But uh, it seems to have uh, happened because the John le Carre story um, came out in 1983. They snapped up the rights immediately. That was Warner Brothers. And um, George Roy Hill was the director who made this film. He was pretty well established. He's a long-term studio guy. He directed Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. He won the Oscar for The Sting. Those are both Paul Newman films, tying it back to Zach's co-host, uh. Christian, who showed up on The Macintosh Man, covering Paul Newman. So, George Hale, very established guy. And his two producers, um, Robert Crawford Jr. and Patrick Kelly, they both produced this movie. They've worked with him for a long period of time. Uh, they jumped on board in the 70s and stuck with him pretty much to the end. This was um, George Roy Hill's penultimate film. He was following up uh, The World According to Garp. He made this film you know, the following year. And then he would finish his career four years later with the Chevy Chase comedy Funny Farm. The thing about George, uh, George Roy Hill was he was very much someone who... Um, I don't know that you would really call him an, an auteur. He was someone who very much would plug himself into different types of material and deliver on it. And some of those movies really succeeded and some didn't. I'm just curious if either of you, the name George Roy Hill jumped out at all. It sounded familiar, but that was it. Yeah. Scott? Uh, for, I was just looking him up on IMDb, actually. I don't think any of his top four films I've seen. Okay. Yeah. I mean, he's someone I've seen Butch Cassidy. I've seen The Sting. I've seen Slapshot and Funny Farm, but he's not someone who jumps to the forefront of my mind when I'm thinking of directors of that particular era. Um, but he was a, you know, reliable pro. Uh, and the movie was written by Loring Mandel. This was kind of interesting in that Loring Mandel is someone who really didn't write films. Uh, he was a TV writer primarily. He only wrote two movies, um, both of them fairly obscure. One was 1979's Promises in the Dark, um, starring Marsha Mason. And he also wrote the 1967 Robert Altman film, Countdown. That is not remembered as one of Robert Altman's um, all-time films. And he's a very esteemed director. So, yeah. Um, the book, uh, the character at the center of the book 
of the little drummer girl was intended to be an English woman in her 20s. So there was like a lot of controversy around this movie in terms of its casting of Diane Keaton. She was in kind of a place in her career. She's always been a very versatile talent, but she became very iconic and beloved for a lot of her Woody Allen work, a lot of the more comedic stuff that we know her so well, you know, Annie Hall, Manhattan, movies like that, Sleeper. Uh, she was looking to kind of, I think, expand the way that audiences saw her. So she was starring in more dramas around this era. She'd done Reds with Warren Beatty in 81. 82, she did Alan Parker, Shoot the Moon. This was kind of a continuation of her ability to kind of, um, her um, determination to work outside her comfort zone. And she was widely criticized for this performance. And a lot of the attention around this movie just was specifically about the miscasting. People felt very strongly, you dig up old reviews, whether it's Roger Ebert, anyone, they're all bringing up the casting. This turned into like the big news story surrounding this movie. Um, I'm just curious, you know, Zach, you read the novel. Did it seem weird even for you going in having read the novel? So here's the thing. When I, I will answer your question, but I'm curious to know what their criticisms of Diane was. I will say, that the point of the book is that Charlie is being pulled between these different poles and her emotions are being manipulated constantly. So the fact that Diane Keaton is older, that isn't sold as well, because if she came off as naive, doesn't really understand the ways of the world, a real romantic, then I think the movie as a whole would work better because that's the premise of the movie but with someone who's older and world warrior it, it just doesn't work if that makes sense if you know what i mean yeah and that was a big part of the controversy was the fact the character is supposed to be in their 20s i think diane keaton was about 38 i think around the time they shot this um so that was part of it also just the fact it was going from a um a, a english actress to a american character for this film as well it's interesting that you you say that because both of you have a bit more information than I do. Cam, you've seen the reviews. Zach, you've read the book. It was one of the notes I made, and I won't get too much into my thoughts on the film, but I, I felt that the character of Charlie was meant to be this sort of naive, just fresh out of uni, that sort of uh, wide-eyed view of the world. Whereas I, you get the impression that Diane Keaton has seen some stuff and would have that more weary pessimistic view yes yeah yeah it definitely felt almost like a university student type of character well that's what was confusing because in the beginning you see her at a university sorry to jump ahead so is like is she is the character supposed to be a university student and they just had diane keaton play her or what i have no idea <laughs> it's, it's a head scratcher <laughs> yeah um uh, what, what else have you got cam yeah, so the budget for this movie was $20 million. It was released October 19th, 1984, right in sort of that period where they're looking to build into Oscar season. I think this was very much seen as Warner Brothers, uh, you know, as a potential Best Picture nominee, maybe a Best Actress nominee. It did not fare well. So as I said, $20 million budget. It grossed domestically $7.8 million. Didn't even open internationally, so its worldwide total was $7.8 million. It landed at number 92 for the year between Just the Way You Are, which I had to look up. That's a Christy McNichol film, romantic comedy, and Ninja 3, The Domination. Wow. <laughs> I was so excited when I saw Ninja 3, The Domination, just underneath. 
I, I need to backtrack for a second. You say this film cost twenty million to make. Yeah. I mean, does Diane Keaton cost nineteen million? There's a lot of location work in this movie. This did not shock me at all that it was expensive. Sure, but like they don't do anything with the locations. They blow them up. It's just kind of there. Yeah, they went there, yeah, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um sure. I, I, I didn't see that on the screen, but yeah, sure. Also, Diane Keaton would have commanded a price tag at this point. This is an Oscar-winning actress who has a long string of hits at this point. Uh, This is a pretty prestigious talent they've attached to this. So her commanding price would be, you know, significant. Yeah, uh, the uh, top three for this year. Number one was Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Number two was Beverly Hills Cop. Number three was Ghostbusters. Also notable on the list, we had at number 52, Top Secret. And at number 81, we had Cloak and Dagger, a film we covered not so long ago. A couple other just notes I'll make. Um, they made in 2018 a six-part BBC adaptation of this starring Florence Pugh, Alexander Skarsgård, and Michael Shannon. From what I have heard, it's fantastic. <laughs> so <laughs> That makes sense. And we'll get to it more later. Yeah. And just lastly, Turner Classic Movies, when they wrote their obituary for George Roy Hill in uh, 2003... This was like the only movie of his they didn't mention in the obituary, which I thought was kind of sad. Oh my goodness, it's not that bad. Come on. <laughs> so Cam, I actually have a behind-the-scenes thing I wanted to mention. You can feel free to cut this if no. time or whatever. But no, please. Juli- Giuliano Maricamas is a name that jumped out to me when I saw him in the cast list. Because as someone who follows the news from Israel, I remember that he died in a manner very similar to this movie. So he was born an Israeli citizen and he was very far left, kind of like Charlie. And he started identifying as a Palestinian citizen and he worked at a children's theater in Janine for the latter part of his life, teaching children drama. And then he was assassinated in April, 2011 by an unknown gunman while he was leaving the theater. He had joked in 2008 that he predicted that he would be killed by a Palestinian for corrupting the youth of Islam, and his killers have yet to be found. He was the one who played, I probably should have mentioned this earlier, he played Julio, who was one of the Mossad agents. He wears a tan jacket, and you can see him most prominently in the scene in Rome where they are tracking the guys on the motorbike and the Mercedes. Wow, that's hardcore. (laughs) You just got out behind the scenes, Cam. Yeah, no kidding. That's the type of insight that apparently Zach was the perfect match for this movie. What can I say? Hmm. Well, I think it's time then to talk about the film. Zach, you are our guest. You have read the book. You've seen the film. What do you think? So I feel weird going first because I'm afraid that I missed something that I like didn't get it, that Nicholas Meyer saw some brilliance here that maybe I didn't pick up. There's really interesting ideas in this movie and also in the book, but being a dumb American viewer, I need them to make it really, really clear what's going (laughs) on. And if you want to ask me what those themes are, I can tell you. But for now, I will say that the main thing that determines whether or not I think it's a good movie is whether or not I was bored. And this movie kept the pace up. It was not boring. It did not feel like two hours and 15 minutes. So that was good. And finally, when it was when it was said that it was made in 1984, I was surprised because it feels like something more like the 1970s. So when there's the violence, like the br- 
brief, brutal, sudden, bloody violence. It reminded me of movies like Dirty Harry or Taxi Driver or Death Wish. So the fact that Back to the Future came out a year after this and then Die Hard came out four years later, surprising. It feels like it's more like 1977, if you know what I mean. Right. And I, I'm curious. Um, now, Nicholas Meyer, we should say, was a big fan of the book, not so much the movie. So <laughs> I think maybe that's the... Uh... I don't know that Nicholas Meyer was going to go to bat for this 1984 adaptation. I, I am curious, okay. though, because you actually read the book. What was your take on the book? Well, my take on the book is similar to that of the movie where there's something really good in here, but I need it to be clearer if that's mm. what mm. Lacare is doing. So I picked up on a few themes, and if you want me to talk about them later, I mm, can. Yeah. Here we go. So the first is Charlie is in a love triangle between Joseph and Mikkel, but Mikkel doesn't actually exist. That's a really interesting idea. And the movie barely touches on it, and the book needs to make it a little bit clearer that that is what's going on. So similar to that, she's being pulled between these worlds. So she doesn't like Israel, but she teams up with the Israelis because she's in love with Joseph, but then she starts to fall in love with Mikkel and later Khalil. So she's being pulled between them and I thought that the book and the movie were going to have this conflict at the end where she's like, oh, I don't know who to side with. Should I go through with this mission? Because it'll mean getting these men that I love killed. What should I do? That was really interesting. But then in the movie, she's like, well, I'm still going to help the Israelis. I'm still going to go through with the plot. I'm just going to feel bad about it once it's done. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I feel like these... It, because it's not a plot-based story. It's a character-based story. It's all about her. It's all about what's going through her mind. That's what we need to see. That's what we need to make clear. I w her character and her co internal conflicts needed more time to breathe. And I don't want to ramble, but I have one last thing. I can also talk about it later. Yeah, I know. Okay. So the, the last thing that jumped out to me that I thought was interesting was women as a weakness for spies women as people that get spies killed. So in this movie, obviously, Charlie gets Khalil killed. That's very clear. But also, and this was not in the movie, do you remember in the beginning when Israeli diplomat's house gets bombed? Yep. Yeah. So in the book, just like in the movie, they use this hot check to bring the bomb into the house. But in the book, Lacare says that the diplomat is willing to trust her because he kind of wants to get with her and kind of wants to cheat on his wife. So that's the theme. And then outside of Little Drummer Girl, in The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, as you may remember, Liz, or in the movie, I forget her name in the movie, she gets the main character killed at the Berlin Wall. But then, and this was, again, in the book, not the movie, but the spy who gets killed at the Berlin Wall in the beginning, the one who kicks off the whole story, he's also betrayed by a woman that he shacks up with. Oh, interesting. And that's something we've covered a little bit on this podcast. Um, Matahari is the movie that really jumps to mind, that sort of theme. It's something that... I, I'll just give my take now on this one. Sure. I, I found this movie kind of baffling, and in a way that I've come across before, where... I'm watching something and there's elements of it I like. Like, I can't dispute that a lot of the filmmaking was was strong. You've got some really great actors here. But it was very clear to me that I was watching a very dense novel being condensed into a two-something-hour movie. And uh, I don't really know. Just watching this movie, 
you know, having not read the book, what the what the filmmakers feel about the themes they're tackling. Um, as you said, you know, Zach, it's a character story. And I felt like the characters were often lost in this movie and we were more connecting the plot points as opposed to actually examining the psychology of the Charlie character as she's submerging herself into this world. And you also mentioned a lot of this is driven by a romantic triangle. Now, it's not... Boy, I didn't really feel the triangle uh, push and pull in this movie. But the connection between her and the Joseph character, played by Yorgo uh, Voyages, or Voyages, um, the connection between those two, it's all spoken in the movie. It's all referenced a lot. It's not something that's subtle. But I never felt it in any way, shape, or form. It was like the movie constantly reminding me. And there's a scene where um, Diane Keaton's character is giving an audition for the Mossad. And uh, she's talking about how, you know, her, or her father was put in prison and all the shame she feels. And it made me think so much about the movie Notorious, um, which that character actually does have that background versus it, be versus it being a lie like Charlie's using it here. And I felt what Ingrid Bergman was going through through the entire journey of Notorious. Whereas here, the Diane Keaton character I struggled a lot with because I never had a clear understanding of what she really felt moment to moment. There's some good scenes with her I want to talk about as we go through this podcast episode. She has some really strong acting moments, but I never understood that character through and through uh, in terms of her journey throughout the movie. And there's just like weird comedy stuff of like she's a bad driver and like going in reverse like a lot of this felt just very strange so it was a movie that i didn't i didn't hate watching it um i just found it frustrating and the sort of thing where i went yeah i probably should have read the book the book doesn't really shine too much of a light on the issues that you said so like I said, yeah, she has all this internal conflict, but it needs to be more spelled out. Like she's like, oh, I'm I'm in love with Mikkel. I love him. But how does that translate to her actions? She still goes through the motions. Well, I should probably just say in the book, Charlie is about five minutes from a nervous breakdown the entire time. Whereas in the movie, especially what jumps to mind is the one scene where she's yucking it up with the Israelis, like laughing, talking, having a great time. That scene made me scratch my head because I was like, what? This doesn't make any sense. She doesn't even like them and she just risked her life for them. Why is she so happy? Yeah, this this film has some definite tone problems. Like it, it, As you mentioned, Cam, from the, the bad driver jokes and then she's holding court and then the next scene, that you know, the guy's getting executed. Like it, it, it's just weird. And then, like you, you know, you got the training scene with her later, and she becomes like she becomes GI Jane all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. That was amazing. I, that moment, I was like, I, I feel like I've just kind of hopped in, you know, for another movie. Like something has shifted in this character that I didn't really see. And there's a lot of heavy moments with her. You know, there's the execution at the end. You know, where she's like breaking down, and I'm like, oh, like this doesn't feel like it was led into and. Diane Keaton's an actress who's very good at neuroses, like maybe the best in the business. Right. But it, it feels like with this movie, she was like, look, I'm known for that. I want to pull maybe back on that a bit and play it a little more um, reserved and cool under pressure. But I don't know that that works within what this character is going through. Did you guys ever feel like she wasn't going to go through with the plan? That she was going to either go over to the other side or just not be able to commit or anything like that, having not read the book? No. No. I thought she was just in it to win it. Much as you had a couple of seconds where she was maybe thinking about it when she was being interrogated, um, I basically thought she was on board the entire time. 
I'm assuming the book cast more doubt on that. I don't really know where the book is going. Like, I needed Lakari to say she held the briefcase in her hand. She thought I could take it to them and save them and whatever. Or I could do this and then Khalil will love me. What should I do? I don't know what to do. I needed something like that. I needed him to make it really clear that that was happening and that never happened. I just sort of had to suss it out on my own. And the film didn't have 600 pages. Mm -hmm. So um, I suppose I, I will jump in with my quick thoughts before we, we, we dissect any further. Um, now, I have prepared my thoughts in the form of a song. Ooh. <laughs> so uh, to the tune of Little Drummer Boy. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I'm sorry in advance. <clears throat> I thought this film was shite per up a pum pum. Oh, wow. <laughs> Aww. And though I really tried per up a pum pum, I fell asleep two times per up a pum pum. <laughs> rup a pum pum. Rup a pum pum. Yeah, I I struggled, and I had to watch this film twice. Yeah, I, honestly, like I mean, everyone knows who listens to this. I I watched the films twice to try and get them into my head, and I genuinely fell asleep twice. There's clearly a good story in here. I don't doubt that, and I and 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 Zach, you assure me it's in the book too. Good, but I don't think they have enough time. So they're zooming through everything. You don't have a minute to sort of sit down and feel what Charlie is feeling. You don't have a minute to stop and feel the connection with Joseph. And so I'm basically sat there for two hours and ten minutes looking at this, I don't know, Diane Keaton overacting in a bunch of scenes and and feeling completely emotionless to any of their journeys. Right. Yeah, I don't entirely agree with you that this movie was shit <laughs> you can go get a lot worse like for example the avengers 1997 but your emotion point made me think of something else i wanted to ask you guys which is at the end after Khalil dies and the israelis are just coming through and killing everybody how did you guys feel watching it i didn't really feel anything because Khalil was not a character who i really had any grasp on whatsoever and we spent very little time in that Palestinian training camp. So I was like, okay, I guess. Like, I think, you know, you said it up front, you know, uh, you didn't really have a good sense on where the movie stood. And that isn't just the movie. That's even like the Diane Keaton character. We see her attending this pro-Palestine rally at the start of the movie. And I'm like, okay, like, I understand this character's politics, but I didn't really understand how she wound up with Mossad. Um... She has a line in this movie that I actually had to write down where she yells, I believe in things. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, <laughs> but I don't understand what those things are. And, you know, obviously the Israel-Palestine conflict is very complex. And I do not really have anywhere near the knowledge to have any sort of statement on the matter whatsoever in terms of my thoughts. So I wanted the movie to give me at least a sense of where the character was coming from. So I could go, okay, that makes sense to me. I never really had that grasp on the character here. Well, that's the thing is that it's not about the politics. And it's so weird that they keep bringing political stuff up into it. And here comes Star Trek The Next Generation. I told you it was coming back. Here we go. There's an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation called The High Ground, where Dr. Yeah. Crusher gets involved in a conflict between a state actor and a ter terrorist, quote unquote, actor. 
And the story, this story could have worked just as well if everybody involved was fictional. Because it's not about the politics, it's about Charlie and these two men that she's in love with. Yeah, and the the love for at least one of those men doesn't come across. Ain't that the truth? <laughs> well, so I, I'm going to try to help you out with her motivation by going to the book. So in, in the movie, it, it's a stretch because Joseph gives her a, a little speech about, you're going to help save lives, so help us out. She's like, oh, okay. But... Here's a couple quotes from the book. He, being Joseph, had granted her an early glimpse of the new family she might care to join, knowing that deep down, like most rebels, she was only looking for a better conformity. And then later, after all her words, their action, their being the Israelis, their action, their abstemiousness, their clear-eyed zeal, their authenticity, their true allegiance to fill the emptiness that had yawned and screamed inside her like a bored demon ever since she could remember. She was a featherweight caught in a swirling storm, but suddenly, to her amazed relief, theirs was the commanding win. So in other words, Charlie's looking for a cause, she's a rebel without a cause, and she found one. That's, that sounds far better. That makes more and more sense. Yeah, the movie could have made that clearer. It was right there. I don't understand why they didn't do it. I think this goes back to what we were talking about in the the briefing section with maybe the problem of miscasting or or at least playing it differently. I just think if if the Charlie character was played by someone who was fresh out of uni, as we said, and could be a bit more malleable and you know could be persuaded to do things and was wide-eyed and was looking for that cause i would buy it but i just didn't i i didn't buy that diane keaton's version of charlie could be convinced that easily you wouldn't want to blame diane keaton specifically the the writers are also pretty shoulder a decent amount of the blame here sure sure um yeah loring mandel looking at you Hmm. I think also, you know, the remake, as we said, you know, uh, Florence Pugh was the star of that. She is in her early 20s, and I could totally buy it because you have Diane Keaton at this, you know, this rally at the start. You have her also as a member of a a theater troupe. So it's something the movie, you know, so often you see movies where we complain, it's so on the nose. But I think this movie needed to be maybe a little more on the nose in the sense of, it's someone who's very much attracted to communities, whether it is, you know, a political community or a theater community and why this appeals to her so much. But I just found, and I want to hear where you guys stood, the connection with her and Joseph for me in this movie just did not work at all. Yeah. You're a hundred percent right about both of those things. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't understand why she was so interested in this guy when she was in, in Mykonos. I know she assumed it was the, the, the the guy speaking at the the conference um but i she was just like googly eyed over him straight away i i didn't really understand why she was on board from that second apart from oh hubba hubba <laughs> yeah this movie has a scott pilgrim problem have you guys seen scott pilgrim versus the world i presume that you have yeah sure so one of the criticisms of the movie which i don't think is unfair is that the whole plot is based around scott trying to defend ramona's honor from these ex-boyfriends but you never feel like the two of them have a real connection their love doesn't hold up through the movie well it's funny you know when we had christian on to talk about the macintosh man one of our criticisms of that film was that paul newman had zero romantic chemistry with the female lead of that film um in that film 
the romance was pretty much secondary to a lot of what else was going on in the movie. Whereas here, I think you need to believe in the connection between these two. You have to, to con to basically give the motivation for the characters going forward and why, you know, Charlie would feel compelled to continue with this mission, why Joseph would be feeling conflicted about her being a part of it. Um, you know, I mentioned Notorious earlier. That's a big part of Notorious is Cary Grant getting Ingrid Bergman to go in on this mission. He's torn up about it. She's torn up about it. And we feel it through those characters. Whereas here, I mean, I don't really know that much about the actor who played Joseph. Um, I may have seen him in something or other, but he's not an actor who is particularly prolific in films that I've watched. And, um, He's almost playing it almost too reserved. Um, I think you can play a character who's, you know, got that sort of icy demeanor, someone who's been in Mossad for a long time, but allows the audience in to kind of feel the cracks. But both the performance and the writing isn't giving him those moments. Absolutely. The movie depends on it and it doesn't work. Yeah, you're right. I mean, her entire character journey, Charlie's character journey, I should say. I mean, she, she starts off as this, uh, you know, pro... Palestine, uh, I don't know what you would call it. She's a rebel with the cause, I suppose. Um, and then she's convinced to to go to onto the other side purely by seeing his hot bod. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, hold on, hold on. It's not it's not just the hot bod. I should say in the book, a couple differences here is first of all she is not a pro-palestinian activist in the book she's just generally left-wing anti-nuclear power save the whales yeah. yada 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 okay. when we were introduced to her on Mykonos, and we learned later that she went to these pro-palestinian speeches but according to her if you believe her she was never really that into it she went because a boyfriend took her and she got to know joseph longer and he's this international man of mystery and that's what she falls in love for, though the hot bod certainly doesn't hurt. And Lakare is a lot of description of men's hot bods in the book, if that's what you're into. <laughs> Send me a copy right now. <laughs> so it, I, I guess the short version of that is that it's not just him, it's everything he represents, which is this larger world, which actually leads me to another quote from the book. Oh, yeah. For that was another thing Kurtz, Kurtz is the Israeli spy master, counted on, which most intelligence professionals forget too soon. To the uninitiated, the secret world is of itself attractive. Simply by turning on its axis, it can draw the weakly anchored to its center. Hmm. Another good quote. Yeah, Lakari's given me all my good lines here. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, well, let's let's talk about some of the things we, we liked about the film. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's some. I know Cam said you had a couple of, of highlight moments you want to talk about. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, we talked about the locations and I thought, you know, whether we're in Beirut, whether we're in Greece, it gives it sort of a larger scope that I thought made the movie interesting. You know, um, Macintosh Man had that 70s atmosphere and this one... It had that sort of 80s cinematography look to me a lot of the time, but nonetheless, I was kind of pulled into the world because it felt so immersive just in terms of this worldwide scope. Um, I liked the way they populated with all these various agents everywhere doing surveillance. It felt like a very large spy world. So even if I didn't necessarily understand what was going on moment to moment in terms of you know the missions they were taking part in or what the larger picture was, I was at least pulled in by just being intrigued by what was going to happen and what these characters were planning. 
Um, so in terms of the like the world building, it's confusing at parts, but I thought it was actually fairly effective in at least keeping me interested in what was going to happen. Yeah, I I, I can't really argue with that. I think I enjoyed some of the some of the places they shot. It it did look okay from time to time, but I I think I I was just struggling at that point. Um, Zach, give me some stuff you'd liked. So like I mentioned, the story really moves along. I wasn't exactly on the edge of my seat, but I was definitely engaged and was never bored. A lot of the spycraft stuff was really cool. People taking headscarves on and off, changing their clothes, jumping in and out of cars, smuggling explosives in cars. The whole thing with the radio and the battery and the big reveal there at the end, combined with the sudden action. I actually liked all the stuff in the training camp. The part where they test Charlie's loyalty by bringing her the Israeli scout, which by the way is not in the book that was also really good so everything that doesn't depend on the love triangle i thought was pretty darn good all the spy stuff yeah yeah the minutia of the spy stuff i thought was very effective as well all the little tricks you know as you said like the bandana and elements like that so often on you know this podcast or just in terms of pop culture spy films we're talking james bond or born or mission impossible stuff where a lot of spy craft is very big and over the top very cartoonish or comic booky I like the more grounded real world spy craft we saw in this film. And a lot of that obviously comes from John le Carre, who was kind of the master of portraying that sort of thing. Um, but I thought it translated well here where it actually did feel involving to watch. And that scene where they actually execute the guy in front of her, I thought that was maybe Diane Keaton's best scene of someone who is in a very tense situation and has to remain somewhat composed in the face of an execution like i think that might have been for me the highlight of her performance yeah that's fair yeah i I, i'd say it's probably one of her her best bits in the film and if we're talking about the spycraft i quite liked the whole the driving to the train station and then uh dropping off the keys that sort of bit and getting on the train yeah because you 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 know just set the scene for people who haven't necessarily watched the whole film or maybe they've read the book but she's uh charlie's character is dropping off a a car that's full of explosives and she's instructed to leave the keys in the exhaust pipe um but she's accosted by an american as she's leaving the car um and she's being watched and she she doesn't leave the keys and as a as a viewer you're thinking oh no she's forgotten about it or she's distracted by the american but you know she she deals with it she goes back and leaves the keys she knew what she was doing the whole time and that was that was quite cool because you know she's not actually a spy, well not a trained spy I should say. And it's also finding ways to use very mundane um, storytelling moments to ramp up the tension. Like that's what makes some of this spycraft so tense is that just normal day to day events like a stranger coming to help you with a bag could throw everything into chaos. Yeah, and it shows her ability to roll with the punches and adapt and have a come up with a plausible story for why she needs to go back. That's why her handlers were like, wow, she's so brilliant. She's so good at this. We knew we made the right choice recruiting her. I have a question for Zach. So that scene we were talking about there with the American approaching her, that comes very shortly after she has proven inept at parking a car. Uh, Just before that moment, we have her um, saying, I do have a mind, and then hitting the reverse and driving into the bushes. Is any of that in the book? Any of this stuff about weird comedic moments with her driving? No, but none of it's in the book. She just parks the car, drops the keys, and leaves. Weird. Very weird. So it's intended to get a comedic moment out of that there, that just in the film adaptation. What a strange yeah. choice. Because it's not there elsewhere. Like, if they would found ways to punch up 
kind of the flightiness of this character through comedy moments throughout the movie, I would go, okay, well, this some of this hasn't wouldn't have aged well, but I would understand what they were trying to do. Whereas here, it's literally just two moments in isolation. Yeah, it reminds me of a movie you guys have recently covered and we will cover later this year, The Courier, where you also have a British civilian recruited by spies. And his fish out of waterness is played for comedy, but it's still a pretty serious movie on the whole. And it's consistent throughout, whereas hers, it's just these like one, you know, or two scenes back to back. Yeah, I, I just found the, the choice for putting in these comedy scenes just to be absolutely bizarre. And, and I don't, I was hoping it wasn't a book, so it's a shame it's not. It just means that they wrote really unfunny scenes. Um, yeah, and, and also like it just doesn't play very well. Like she's meant to be this actress who, you know, by this point is on board. And, you know, you, you look at her later when she's G.I. Jane. She's clearly good at these sorts of things. So how on earth does she put it in reverse accidentally? Like, what is that? It's not even funny. I didn't laugh. It is a weird transition, though, to have, to go from this moment to her, like, assembling a gun. Was she blindfolded when she did it? I don't even remember. She might yep. have been. Yeah, yeah she was yep. blindfolded, assembling a gun. And uh, we see her going through this training with Klaus Kinski's character, Kurtz, um, Klaus Kinski, fascinating casting. He is a Werner Herzog regular, starred in some of Werner Herzog's greatest films like Aguirre, The Wrath of God, or Nosferatu. Um, I was very excited to see him in this movie. But you see her going through, you know, the sort of training with them, but it all feels psychological. It doesn't feel like they're training her in terms of, like, the weapons of spycraft or the military. So moments like that felt like they kind of came out of nowhere and were unearned. It's also strange that they have her assembling a gun when the only thing they actually need her to do is drop a briefcase off and then walk away. That is a great point. Why in this move is that see is like that journey in the book where she's like building guns because it doesn't feel like that's part of anything she would be doing anyway. Yes, it is. Okay. She learns all the guns. She learns to build explosives. But part of it is also her becoming indoctrinated into the ways of these revolutionaries. So the guns are almost besides the point. They're making sure that she's loyal, which is also the, 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 like I mentioned, the scene with the scout is not in the movie or in the book, excuse me, but there's a part where a guy comes up to her and he says, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. I want to leave. What do you think I should do? And then later they say, this guy came up to you and you didn't report him. So are you loyal to the revolution or not? So it's a similar idea executed differently. No pun intended. Right, right. And how much time is spent in the book on the training camp? I believe at least weeks, if not months. I don't have it oh, up right wow. now. I want to say like six months. Wow. Okay, yeah. I did not get that sense at all watching the movie. Mm -hmm. And that's what I mean about a mixed opportunity because we as viewers could have seen her become more and more repeating the slogans, repeating the slogans, firing the guns, all that stuff. And we're like, oh my gosh, does she actually believe it? Or is she just pretending? We don't know. Dramatic tension. And this is where, for me, a lot of the compressing a much longer narrative into a two-hour movie really came into play with moments like that. I remember, too, there was at one point they just cut to Jerusalem, where you have Kurtz and, uh, I think, Joseph just talking about, what is she up to now? And then we cut away and we never go back to them in Jerusalem. And it's like, really? Like, why would you confuse an audience by cutting to a location they haven't been before for literally one 
you know, 15 second dialogue exchange. A lot of this felt like kind of throwing the book in a blender to try to get a two hour film out of it. Well, this is this is something I was going to bring up later, but it kind of feels like we've fallen on the topic. There's clearly a complex story here from the books. And, and Zach, I'm sure you can attest to that. They've made some really odd choices for the things that they've brought from the book to the screen. For instance, that entire car sequence we were talking about when she drops off the keys doesn't really play a part in the narrative. Yes, that's true. And I should say the book, you guys asked me how the book was before we started. I said it was long, which is true. Yeah. But the book also does not need to be that long. So, for example, and Lacare admits this in the introduction, the opening scene with the diplomat's house that gets bombed, the first like five pages is just describing the street that it's on. It's like some J.R.R. Tolkien stuff. So the book also could have been cut and made more streamlined. And they could have taken out a lot of spy stuff because like we said a few times, it's about the character and her internal decision. I know you guys haven't covered this by you came in from the cold yet. It is way better, hmm. both the yeah. movie and the book than this. Well, uh, we're starting low and, you know, tempering our expectations. <laughs> and it can only get better from here. Oh, that so makes sense. That's, that's, yeah. And should, I should note, actually, John le Carre apparently disliked almost all the adaptations of his work, except for, in terms of the films, Spy Who Came From from the Cold and Deadly Affair. Everything else he was not a big fan of. He was a fan, though, of the TV adaptations of Tinker Tailor and Smiley's People. So um, I just wonder if it was a case where... Well, here's a question for you, Zach. Like, if the book comes across as very complicated in terms of the details, not necessarily the plot... Do you think maybe it just felt like it overwhelmed someone trying to turn it into a film? I think so. Yes. They wanted to get the intricate spy plot with all the double crosses and the going backs and forths and the disguises, but they also wanted the big psychological love story. And it's no surprise to see which one got the short end of the stick, which is the latter. When really, it makes sense that they converted it into a miniseries because that is a better medium for this story it gives the character more time to breathe it's a great decision yeah because there's a moment at the end of this movie where joseph goes and approaches her on the street and she says like i'm dead you killed me and that is a moment that should feel like a gut punch for what this person's gone through but my takeaway was kind of just a blank stare because I never felt like I'd watched a character journey so much as kind of a um, almost just an omniscient um, point by point of the story of what was happening throughout this film. Now, I have a question for you guys. Speaking of the end, why do you think she sleeps with Khalil at the end? Okay, so to me, that was literally just a, well, I have to do this because of duty. That was my only real takeaway watching the film. Like to put him to sleep because they want him to be asleep, maybe? Okay. That is not how it comes across in the book. In the book, she's totally into him. And <laughs> she's not really sure, but she's she's like, again, she's like hubba hubba. So, what? There you go. <laughs> well, okay. In fairness, I think what Lakari was trying to get at was she's on the verge of a nervous breakdown. She's lost. She's scared. She feels like she could die at any minute. And this guy... He's like Mikkel in his final form. So he's like older, he's hotter, he's a man of mystery, and she's just like, take me now. That's the impression that I got. What you get as if she was a younger person. I hate to go back to the age, mm -hmm. but I, I think it's probably... I, I'm actually going to go watch the BBC adaptation 
soon, I think. Um, you, you can understand that sort of like deer in headlights and the Stockholm syndrome maybe setting in a little bit as well. And you're not sure which way you're being pulled. I could I could buy that. Whereas here, I just assumed she was sleeping with him because that was the mission. Yeah, <laughs> it definitely was not the mission. I I personally didn't get that impression, but that's the problem with reading the book, I guess, is that it taints you for the movie. Sure, and I, I can kind of see that you could go that angle because I thought um, Sammy Frey, who plays Khalil, like he was a charismatic actor. Like he was someone who a lot of the movie was building up to him throughout. A lot of the mission is to reveal Khalil. And the moment when they did so, I was like, oh, that's cool. Like, I, you know, think this guy has genuine, like, charisma. But I also didn't feel like I spent enough time with him to be able to chart that sort of connection between those two characters. Yes. Well, I have a question for you both. Okay. Mm. Do you like music? Oh, God. Do you have another song for us? Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I, one and done, I think. I'd leave it on a high. That's well, I don't know, Scott. You could just start singing downtown. Do, 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 do. <laughs> I like that's that my, part. That's my outro. That's my outro. <laughs> okay, but to answer your question, yes, I do like music. Why do you ask? No, that's what he asks in the film. It was just a really bizarre line. Oh, I don't remember that. Well, she meets Kelly and they're in the car and he just turns to her and goes, do you like music? Yeah, but Scott, you're <laughs> leaving out the best part. What does he then proceed to play? Like some generic 80s pop nonsense? It's like royalty-free, <laughs> instrumental, <laughs> um, Casio keyboard tinkering. It's amazing. He's like rocking out to it. And it's like, okay, <laughs> sure. I loved it. Like that was one of the unintentional hilarious moments for me. It was just that music that played. Yeah, I think he played it twice and both times it got a laugh out of me. Okay, so some of the comedic stuff worked for you. That's good. Was it supposed to be that funny though? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they were going for humor, definitely. So unfortunately, to change away from the humor, I, I guess we're asking each other questions. So mm, I have a question sure. for you guys. The part where the Israelis parade the real Mikel before Charlie, both with his clothes on and his clothes off, was incomprehensible to me. It made no sense at all. Uh, what do you think? Well, I've seen it twice, so I'm probably the best person to ask. Um, honestly, I don't know what it was meant to do. Apart from give her information, like, in case she's interrogated about him. Because they're meant to have slept together, I guess. That's what I thought as well, that they wanted her to have a complete understanding. Uh, if the, She had an intimate relationship with this Michelle character. She needed to be able to describe him perfectly and so they were going to show him completely exposed so she could describe every scar or whatever if you know basically interrogated that's a good point and i had not thought of it but they do it in the book too and by the way the israelis come off way worse in the book than they do in the movie but i was like okay this doesn't make any sense they're like okay here's a guy he looks totally pathetic totally being down don't feel bad for him okay don't feel bad for him trust us he's a bad guy okay now we're going to kick him a couple times we're going to torture him a little bit but don't feel bad for him take our word for it i was just like what this doesn't make any sense well that's maybe something straying on something else i wanted to bring up was i had a lot of trouble telling who was who in this film and you know especially some of the side characters not maybe not joseph or kurtz or khalil when we were like having these cutaway scenes to people in observation towers and talking to each other about random bits of intel i wasn't sure what side was who and so that lost me a lot of the time and and also like later on 
when she's obviously then back to working for the Israelis undercover for the Palestinians, mm. I, I was starting to lose where I was in the story. Yeah, there are a lot of minor characters that come back and forth, and it's tough to keep track of them, definitely. Well, a lot of them don't have any dimension whatsoever. So you see them a lot, they pop up a lot, they spout, you know, exposition into a walkie-talkie or something, but they aren't really characters. The only one that I think really popped for me was um, Kirsten Daana as Helga, who is the blonde um, Palestinian woman that she deals with later on in the film. Yeah. She kind of popped, but um, by and large, a lot of them feel a little anonymous, and that's both on the Mossad side as well as the, um, you know, the Palestinian side. Oh, by the way, not to be a corrector, but Helga is Swedish or something. She's like a radical leftist. She is a Palestinian. She's just sympathetic to them and part of their network. Ah, okay. Well, let's just have a quick dive through the characters. Obviously, we've got Diane Keaton as Charlie, which we've spoken about at length, I would say. But has anyone got anything to add about the performance? There's one thing I'll add, which was that the book was inspired largely, that character, by Vanessa Redgrave who was very pro-Palestine, um, especially, you know, in the 60s or whatever. She was very controversial for that. That is what largely inspired John le Carre when he created um, that character. And I would have liked to have seen someone maybe a little more with that Vanessa Redgrave fire, I think, in the role. I would have bought it more in scenes where you have her, you know, attending the rally or whatever. Like, you would buy more of that conviction that just felt like it was a little lacking here. Yeah, I would have liked to have them commit one way or the other. I wanted her to either be a badass who's totally on board, having a good time, deceiving everybody, G.I. Jane, or have it be more like in the book where she is up a creek without a paddle, is in over her head, is very afraid and very paranoid and can't handle any of it. I admit the first one probably would have been more entertaining to watch as a movie, but the second one would have felt a little bit more authentic. But as I said, the movie didn't really commit one way or the other, which made it confusing. Uh, Next up, we have Yorgo Voyages. I think, did we settle on? Uh, Sure. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Uh, Playing Joseph, which is kind of the romantic lead of the film. Um, uh, I, I, I think his performance was okay, but I, I didn't get anything out from it. I didn't, didn't get any emotion. Apparently he played Carlos the Jackal in the original Born Identity miniseries. So that's kind no of interesting. Way. Yeah, apparently Spy Hard's connection. Uh, but the only thing I think I've really seen him in was the movie Frantic with Harrison Ford, which I don't really remember that well. Um, it, it kind of goes back where I don't know whether it's through the, you know, the direction or his own choices, but it just feels like this character is too aloof. And there's something interesting here in this connection he has with Charlie where they're both lying a lot. You know, he will announce, you know, that the something like the car's full of explosives and then he's like, I'm joking. Um, I like the idea of these two unknowable people kind of playing off each other, but because he's played so aloof, it almost prevents the audience from connecting with him either. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I'm curious in the book. In the book, is he aloof to that degree? No, he is like, "I love you, Charlie. Don't do this. <laughs> Don't help the Mossad agents. You're gonna get killed. I love you. Stop." That's insane. That is absolutely insane, given the movie. Uh, yeah, I'll just go into what I thought. I thought he was terrible. He was like a big block of wood, and I really didn't like his mustache. I might add, I found it very unattractive. 
Oh, well, I grew the same one in honor of him, so that's really a bummer, Zach. Well, you're not him. That's that's the difference. Also, a, a quick difference between the book and the movie is that in the book, his name is Gotti Becker, and in the movie, his name is Scott Becker. Like, Scott, that's not a very Israeli name. I don't understand why they changed it. This whatever. Huh. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. That's uh... No offense to our local Scott. There's a lot of strange choices. I mean, Scott's a perfectly good name. It just doesn't fit him so much. It's it's a great name where I'm from. <laughs> Next up, we have uh, Klaus Kinski as Kurtz. I think he was probably the most dynamic of the people in this film. Quite animated, certainly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like, this is something I want to hear Zach talk about because I had the same response, Scott, where I walked out going like, that's the character I found the most watchable. Um, I think Klaus Kinski could make anything more interesting. He's just one of those great actors. Apparently a very difficult man in real life. Uh, fascinating guy. They made a whole documentary called My Best Fiend about his relationship with him and Herzog and just how dysfunctional it was. But here, I was watching him. like He had my attention throughout. Whereas the movie's over, I sit down, I read some reviews just for, you know, some context. I just want to know what the critical thoughts on this movie were. And a lot of them cited that character as one of the biggest disasters in translation from the book. In that he was far more complex and interesting in the book, and the movie didn't capture any of that. So I'm curious, Zach, where you came down on this character and his performance. So I don't know the characterization of George Smiley that well. He only appears briefly in The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. But I will say that this character, Kurtz, and he also has a few other names in the book, is depicted as dangerous and scary, willing to go whatever distance he needs to in order to accomplish his mission, screw over any friend, threaten anybody he needs to, kill anybody he needs to, he's supposed to be scary. And I did not feel like he was scary in the movie. He felt like somebody's friendly uncle. Though I will say that Lecare really captured the way old Jewish men sometimes talk. I thought specifically of the part in the book and they say it in the movie, so she lies. She lies for us today. She lies for them tomorrow. I mean, whatever. She lies a little blah, 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 blah. You know what I mean? If you've seen a Mel Brooks movie, you know what I'm talking about. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, It's funny. Maybe I bring some baggage to uh, this performance because I've seen Klaus Kinski be so intense and often terrifying in other movies, I brought that over to how I viewed the character here. Because the idea of him being, as you said, like kind of the friendly uncle, he struck me more as the friendly uncle who's like a homicidal maniac. <laughs> yeah, he didn't seem homicidal ma- like a maniac to me. But the part yeah. where he gets, where he orders the real Michelle and the girl, I don't think we ever get her name when he orders them to be effectively murdered because they're killed while helpless, that should have been like a scary moment. And it didn't really come off that way to me. Right. Are you talking about Katrine, the woman who bombs the, um, yes. Uh, yeah. Okay. Her. Yeah. Right. Um, it felt though, the way that the characters reacted to it, like it was quite severe because like both Joseph and Charlie have a strong reaction to it. So I was willing to go with it, that he was kind of playing like, I felt like Kurtz often would play it kind of bland, which you so often see in these types of movies where people are doing very awful things and dealing a very, you know, in a very mundane response, you know, just the mundane of evil in a way. And I kind of saw that in this character. Like the Kurtz one was not a character I struggled with at all in this movie. There was a scene I liked of his where you could maybe see the dimension and that edge. Um, 
And it's a strange scene because it starts off with uh, Diane Keaton holding court. I think we talked about it slightly earlier. And she's she's telling some silly joke. And it's like, uh, and it wasn't even my pickle. <laughs> yeah. And every, everyone's laughing. And he's laughing. He's like, oh, Charlie, you're so funny. And then he's like, all right, everyone out of the room. Yeah. And everyone, everyone sort of walks off. And it just... A silence comes in. Kind of reminds me of the scene of Ministry of Fear when the the cake is picked up and everyone at the village fate just goes silent. Right. And there's that, that eerie tension just appears. And I got that from that scene. So I, I did get the idea that maybe he had a bit of an edge to him. All right. The only other person I had I thought worth mentioning was uh, Sammy Frey as Khalil. We didn't get much of him apart from a, a few scenes at the end, but he did get uh, shot to pieces pretty cool. Yeah, that was a that was definitely a memorable scene. I didn't expect the movie to pull out something that graphically violent, and I bought it when Diane Keaton's character like completely melted down afterwards and had to be loaded into an ambulance. It just felt like that moment worked in isolation versus something we'd seen a character building towards throughout. And um, again, it's kind of that problem where I didn't feel like I knew Khalil well enough to have an emotional investment in his fate. But pretty, I mean, if you're going to have a death scene as an actor, that's not a bad one to have. Did anyone understand his story about the letter? Um, the story about the letter. I'm trying to Losing remember. his finger. He was explaining how he lost his finger to Charlie. Oh, yeah. He was building a bomb and it went off in his hand. And he lost a finger from it. Right? Oh. Does that sound right? That sounds about right, yeah. Yeah, because he's a okay. letter bomber. Oh... Okay, now that makes sense. All right, thank you. A very common problem. <laughs> I will say for him, he really conveyed a aura of danger about him, even before he pulls a gun on her. The whole scene at the end where he figures out what's happening, I thought was really good. It was pretty much, it, of course, it was the climax of the movie, so one would hope that it would work. Well, he did get the sort of greatest spycraft bit of this film, which is removing the batteries from the radio. Yeah. Yeah. Probably the smartest move, and that's how she he figures out that I I, I think he figures out that Charlie's a double agent at yeah. that point. Though I will say it doesn't make any sense. That whole part doesn't make any sense because why he never needed to be in contact with Charlie at any point during the plot. They should never have been in the same room together. And if he's Mr. Super Smart, Mr. Super Careful, it doesn't make sense. But I guess the idea is like, oh, we're playing on his emotions. She was close to his brother. And that's the end. That's how she's able to get close to him. I mean, as a man who has four brothers, I wouldn't want to sleep with any of their partners, I have to say. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I, I find that to be incredibly icky. It is. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, but hey, it, it's not my story. All right, gents, before we get to the knock list, do we have any final thoughts, uh, final questions about the film? Uh, Zach, you're the guest. You're up first. Hmm. I guess I probably should have saved some of my themes for this point. (laughs) But I guess we could bring them up again. What do you think about the whole idea of, if not necessarily women, but human connection as a weakness for a spy? Do you think that's something the movie is trying to communicate as a general Le Carre point of view? I don't think the film's trying to communicate at all. Okay. I didn't get that impression. Yeah, I would say maybe those elements are baked into the story, but they aren't conveyed in a way that's effective. So, and that's an element of so many spy stories where I actually completely buy into it. And here I just didn't whatsoever. We spoke about the world is not enough quite recently. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the points of that film is perhaps the anti, perhaps the the kryptonite to Bond is love. Um, and and so that theme does go through spy literature and and, and spy media. But I just in this film, I I didn't get it at all. Well, this movie is more like the reverse. It's the weaponization of love. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. That's another interesting idea they could have unpacked further and then didn't. Yeah. Is it more in the book, though, the, the whole loves thing? Oh, sure. It's in there all the time. You just don't really buy it. <laughs> <laughs> this is a this is a damning review on the book and the film here. Well, the, yeah. the book didn't work as well for me. Maybe Nicholas Meyer would like to come convince me and also sign my Star Trek The Wrath of Khan poster while he's here. I sure <laughs> wouldn't complain. But actually, I have a couple spy fact versus fiction stories. And if you guys want to cut it for time, or if you think it's inappropriate, that's okay. But no, go for are you it. Interested? Go so, for yeah. it. Go so for there's it. a part where Joseph says, these terrorists that were hunting put a bomb in a luggage of a pregnant woman and then blew up an airplane with it. Do you remember that part? Yeah. Yeah. So I looked and I couldn't find that specifically. There were a couple examples of planes being bombed because someone put a bomb in the luggage compartment. But then in 1986, Three years after the book was published at Heathrow Airport in London, Israeli security guards working for El Al found an, a Semtex explosive in the bag of Anne-Marie Murphy, a five-month pregnant Irish woman attempting to board a flight to Tel Aviv. And she was unaware the bomb had been there. It had been given to her by her fiancé, Nazar Hindawi, a Jordanian. And that, I think, is why they were asked to this day, did you pack your own bag or did someone pack it for you? It's just weird that this took place before the book was made. Wow. Or before the book was written. So that was interesting. And then this story reminded me of a... If you follow Israel events, you probably have heard her name before, but a girl named Rachel Corey, who is an American from the Pacific Northwest who was a left-wing activist she actually was, I would think it was safe to say far left. There's a picture of her burning an American flag. She traveled to the West Bank to be involved in anti-Israel pro-Palestinian activities and died because of it. So it's a disputed circumstance. She was protesting the Israeli, they were either demolishing a house or demolishing a supply tunnel, depending on who you ask. It was a military bulldozer. She was caught underneath it and was killed. The circumstances of her death will remain probably in dispute forever. But it's a similar thing to this movie where you have a left-wing American getting involved in the conflict and getting in over her head. Yeah, geez. I, well, I, it, it's, I guess in uh, here, uh, history is uh, more fascinating than the fiction we watched. <laughs> well, it's often much heavier. That yeah, was oh, a yeah, way heavier yeah. story than anything that happened in the movie. For sure. I don't know if we mentioned it, but you, you just brought up a, a point in my head. In the book, she was written to be an English woman. Yes. Whereas she's an American in this. Do they ever explain why she's in, in England? Because a lot of the shots of England are filmed around Fulham, an area I'm quite familiar with and used to spend a lot of time in. And so I recognize the streets they filmed in. I just wondered why she ended up there. They don't explain it in the movie. I was looking for it. I guess she just works there. I mean, she says she went to RADA, uh, which I think is in England. Okay. Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. So maybe yeah. just she studied there and then just stayed. Possibly, yeah. Um, just working abroad, I guess. I, they don't give any sort of backstory there. Yeah, I, I mean, it's not really necessary. It doesn't really make a difference, but it's just curious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I just had a couple little notes I'll make. Number one, uh, it was interesting to see Bill Nighy here as her um, 
colleague yeah. in the theater. Uh, this was one of his earlier roles. He doesn't have a lot to do other than to look very um, unhappy about what she's doing. <laughs> it's a lot of silent, disapproving looks, but always great to see him. Uh, and then also, I want to mention, I thought the score for this movie by Dave Grusin was very poor. It has that 80s sort of um, synth style, and it just did not work for me whatsoever. There's a moment where she has the big kiss scene with Joseph, and this like soap opera synthesizer score kicks in and i was like this is brutal like this is not working for the atmosphere whatsoever for me i just remember them making a kind of some odd choices with the instrumental stuff there was a couple of like guitar tracks or maybe it was the the 80s synth stuff but they were just playing at really odd times that sort of stuck out to me that i wrote down that the soundtrack is trash yeah uh, i didn't even really notice the soundtrack i rarely do so uh, okay, I had sort of one question, really, before we get to the knock list. And I think this film had a lot of story to tackle. And I think, as Zach pointed out earlier, you know, it tried to run the gamut of doing a spy story and a love story at the same time. I think this film could have been cut down to a more manageable length and also perhaps getting rid of some of the unnecessary plotting. So my question is to you both, what would you excise from the film? Or would you not at all? Would you keep it as it is? Do you want to go first, Cam, or would you like me to go? Why don't you go first? So the whole thing about tracking the motorcycle and dropping off the car was very unnecessary. It took a lot of time. It's better to say, recruit her, train her, have her go into the camp, infiltrate, earn their trust. The big moment comes. What are we going to do? What is she going to do? Climax. She makes a decision and then off you go. You know, that's a really good answer, actually, and a way to refine that material into something much more, um, hopefully internally consistent, but also more focused. Because I do feel like this movie kind of exists in this nether realm between, um, you know, being uh, a um, respectful adaptation of a book and a watchable movie. Mm -hmm. So that would definitely be one way to do it. I'm sure like it would infuriate probably people who read the book because they would excise so much of it, but it would probably make for a more watchable film. Yeah, I, I can't disagree with that because I just think a lot of the elements that didn't work for me here just felt like they were being, you know, cut to ribbons in terms of refining um so maybe it would have been better just excise them yeah i think that's actually the best suggestion i could even come up with or just do what they did in star trek that, yeah. that should be your answer to all things basically <laughs> just go back to star trek it's usually a good compass no i i i don't think i would uh i don't think i can argue with that zach i think you nailed it on the head thank you i i really struggled with the ending with the bomb mm -hmm. and what was going on i felt that bit was so rushed yeah and she was rushed through it. I didn't really understand what was going on, and I've watched it twice. Hmm. Uh, well, I, I, the, it's pretty much the same as in the book. I think the moment of truth is when she puts up like a flag or something to say, hey, this is the bomb. Be, be ready. And once she actually arrives, there's no tension, though, because they're all well prepared. They have the guy in the Hurt Locker suit ready to go. So that's not a big tension point. When I, As I said, I feel like it should have been. Yeah, because that, that, I mean, that's not the dramatic high of the film. That's a couple of scenes later with the uh, the, the shooting of, yeah. of Khalil. But I feel like some more time could have been spent on that 
the bombing scene. And yeah, just get rid of all that stuff in the beginning and have her go through the torture of the, the training camp and question her her choices and question about the bombing and then question herself again as she sleeps with, with Khalil. You think about um, Tatiana in From Russia With Love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we had this problem uh, when me and Cam covered the film of how she's given this mission to to sleep with Bond. And she's really hesitant in that first scene. And then when you see her again, she's she's happy as day. She's, yep, let's, let's have sex. Oh, jeez. Um, and, and, and in this one, I think she, again, Diane Keaton's character, Charlie, just just is happy to jump in. And there's no like internal struggle where I think it, all it needed was one scene of her going, is this the right idea? Should I be doing this? Looking in a mirror, talking to herself or, or something, writing in a diary. I don't know. Give me a voiceover. Yeah. Um, and... It would have just given it a little bit more tension. They need to make it clear. As I've said many times and I will continue to say, they need to make it clear what's going on. There's all these interesting ideas in the book and also in the movie, but make it clearer for the, us dumb American audience members. Yeah. And, and dumb British uh, members too. Yes. And Canadians. <laughs> I have one last difference between the book and the movie that I think mm-hmm. you guys would appreciate. In the movie, the gun that is Mikel's gun that he uses to protect himself is a Walther. In the book, it is a Walther PPK. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Not the Beretta, though. Uh, no. Which is a shame. No. But I I, I wasn't sure, because it definitely wasn't a PPK. I wonder what they use in the film now. Huh. But um, Gun Nuts let us know. But, yeah, that would have been a nice touch. It probably would, it probably would have distracted you a little bit, though, if they said Walther PPK. Well, yeah, we were waiting for someone to be like, oh, or you, you think you're James Bond or something. I guess it depends on how well they think the average Giants member knows James Bond's arsenal. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, I don't know who this film is for. <laughs> well, the fact that they were opening it around Oscar time shows that they thought it was going to be a prestige film that would pull in, you know, more of your mainstream adult audience. Um, but it was not to be. <laughs> womp womp. Right. I think we've reached the pivotal moment of the podcast. Knock list time. Is the little drummer girl making the knock list? Zach, you're our guest. You're up first. You know, when you guys asked me my thoughts on the movie, I was afraid that you guys were going to think it was brilliant and I like totally missed it. And I, <laughs> I'm glad to see my opinions were validated. That's why I go on the internet. <laughs> yeah, as I've said many times, I can see what they were going for, but it did not work. I didn't feel like the book would make some kind of book knockless, so I'm definitely going to say, sorry, there are other Lucari things that would work better. Cam? Um, so the answer is a no for me as well. Uh, I didn't hate this movie. I remember, Scott, um, you'd posted about this um, this book um, in the Spybrary, um, and people were like, oh, good luck with that torture, essentially. Like, that movie's going to be rough. I didn't really find it that rough to watch, but it just felt like, well, as I've said, just a, a book that was condensed. And I think one thing when you're watching a adaptation um, from a book, you want to watch the movie and, you know, in a best case scenario, feel like, I'd like to read that book. You know, I remember having that response to stuff like, you know, Jaws or Jurassic Park, but, you know, uh, more literary things than that as well. Um, you know, there's been Shakespeare films I watched that made me want to go back and read the plays. Um I had no interest whatsoever in reading The Little Drummer Girl after watching this film. So 
it didn't uh, draw my attention towards the subject matter in any real way. And the movie just kind of felt there. I wasn't bored, but I also was never excited. And it just kind of felt flat to me. And it's not a movie that will loom large in my memory going forward through Spy Hard's podcast. Yeah, it's not a bad movie. It's just a lot of unrealized potential. Yeah, totally. Okay, so it sounds like we have two no's. And as usual, that means my vote is redundant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, here it is. I really didn't like this film. Oh, wow. I, I, I know you both said, like, oh, it's not too bad at the start. And Sure. Everyone has their own taste. That's fine. And we often get asked, like, what was the, the film you liked the least? And my answer has been, until now, Men in Black 2. But it is now The Little Drama Girl. <laughs> oh, God, no. <laughs> okay, can you, like, explain or can you, like, expand upon why you don't like it so much um okay i didn't relate to any of the characters i didn't care what they were going through i was not pulled into it i found the story to have an interesting component to it that wasn't fleshed out so i was disappointed um so i had no characters and i was i was pushed through a very fast plot that was not very well under not very well described and explained so i didn't care and I didn't like what I was seeing. I didn't like the performances of most of the actors in the film. And I was just utterly, utterly bored. <laughs> um, and that's a shame. Like, I, 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 I could watch Men in Black 2 and take the piss out of it. Right. Right. This, I don't think I could take the mickey out of this too much. I would just, I honestly couldn't think of worse things to do for two hours than sit through this film again. <laughs> Wow. Wow. Well, um, (laughs) it might make the disavowed list, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Better luck next time. (laughs) Um, Well, okay. It sounds like a triple no. And the little drummer girl is unfortunately not beating her way onto the knock list. And as such, the dossier of the film is complete and filed as classified. Cam, before we talk about what we're doing next week, we have a quick message from the Nerdy Photographer podcast. Roll the clip. Howdy, I'm Casey, the host of the Nerdy Photographer podcast. Are you curious about photography? Perhaps you run a creative-minded business? Then you'll want to tune in to the Nerdy Photographer podcast. Episodes feature stimulating interviews and discussions, as well as a little bit of totally useless information all set inside the frame of a science fiction comic book adventure. So what are you waiting for? Adventure awaits. Head over to nerdyphotographer.com or find the Nerdy Photographer podcast wherever you get your podcast. That was the Nerdy Photographer podcast. Snap it up on all major podcast apps. Well, Cam, what do we have next week? Well, Scott, we are heading to 1967 to tackle the second Derek Flint adventure in like flint Ooh, good choice i can't wait to dance like a crazy man again (laughs) well let's hope the sequel keeps up the same level of gratuitous sex and violence that we all know and love um but before we wrap up zach i want to thank you again well not again i want to thank you for joining us this week it's been an absolute pleasure to have you and to complete the set of the spy fi guys well thank you for having me it was a lot of fun and thank you for bringing some actual insight with the uh, background on the novel. It was invaluable in helping me understand this movie in some ways. <laughs> There's been a few that have gone as far as you, so I tip my hat. Oh, I appreciate it. 
Um, now, for the listeners, where can they find more from you and more from the SpyFi guys? So the Spy-Fi guys, S-P-Y-Fi guys, can be found on all the relevant social media platforms and wherever you can find podcasts. And if you really love me and want to hear more from me, I have another podcast with my two siblings and a mutual friend called Tuesday Night Gaming. Night as in not like a knight in shining armor, but the time of day where we just talk about whatever is on our mind, usually an episode of TV or a movie every week. Mm, Nice. And I will have uh, links to those in the show notes for anyone who wants to check those out. Well, again, Zach, thank you for joining us. So your mission, listeners, is to first of all, check out the SpyFi guys. Of course, you can find them on all major podcast apps and to check out In Like Flint and join us next week. You can, of course, follow us on social media at SpyHards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We are, of course, a proud member of the Quite The Thing podcast network, a great network where you can find tons of great shows. Uh, just Google Quite The Thing podcasts. Um, but until next week, listeners, Apollo Wine for lovers. Da 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 da.